How many of you knew that Judgment Day came in 1991? There it is. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. But it turns out Judgment Day also came in 1993 when Nigel Benn fought Chris Eubank. And it came again in 2013 and again in 2014 when the Welsh rugby teams got together. In fact, if you search on the internet, you will find a whole stream of sports and entertainment events that have been billed as Judgment Day. And of course, the result of all that is that Judgment Day has come to mean almost nothing. It means nothing more than here's another TV show that you really shouldn't miss. Here's another film you really ought to go to. But today's advertisers stole the idea from the Bible. And so if we want to learn about the real Judgment Day, we have to go back to the Bible. And when we do, we learn that Judgment Day will be much, much more than a rugby match or anything else that we sit and watch. Judgment Day is something each one of us is going to be involved in. It's going to be the ultimate moment of truth for each one of us. It's going to be the day when our ultimate destiny is confirmed. And on that day, there will be no hiding. There will be no going back. There will be no opportunity to change our minds. We are looking at the book of Revelation and we have come to Revelation chapter 20, the second half of that chapter. And in the passage we're going to read, the real judgment day is described for us. You'll find it in the church Bible on page 1249 or in the large print 1937. And before we read this, let me take a moment to remind us what's been going on in the sections leading up to this. We have had several different descriptions of the last battle, the last rebellion against God and his people at the end of history. And last week we saw what the outcome of the last battle is going to be for Satan. He will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur along with the beast and the false prophet. And there he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Throughout human history, Satan spent his time opposing God and waging war on God's people and tormenting the rest of humanity with enslavement enslaving them to empty promises and false hopes. Satan's eternal punishment will be just. He doesn't need to stand trial. There's no question about Satan's guilt. 
There's no doubt Satan deserves to be damned to hell. But what about everyone else? Well, that's the issue our passage this morning is going to address. As we turn back today to these visions of the future, the last battle is over now. God's enemies have been defeated. And in chapter 20, verse 11, John describes what comes next. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word. The first thing John becomes aware of is the awesome presence. In verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. We've seen this throne before. In the Old Testament, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all saw it. And they all described it. And earlier in Revelation, in chapter 4, John saw it and described it. At least he made an attempt to describe it. The main impression we got in chapter 4 was that it's beyond what human language really can describe. But what John managed to convey was the glory and centrality and sovereignty of this throne. The throne was radiating light and everything else in heaven was arranged around it. All creation was under the control of the one on the throne. It's that glorious, central, sovereign throne that John sees again here. This time he describes it as a great white throne. Since the focus of this passage is on the judgment handed out from God's throne, the whiteness indicates this is the throne of perfect judgment. The one on the throne is spotless. He's perfectly holy and his judgment is flawless. That is something we will not find anywhere else. We certainly won't find it in our human leaders and authorities. It seems every time America gets a new president, before his term is up, half the country, the half that didn't vote for him, has called for him to be impeached. 
In other words, they want him to be charged with some offense committed while in office. In the USA, the position of president is certainly not seen as above reproach. But this throne John sees is unimpeachable. The verdicts coming from this throne are perfectly truthful and perfectly just. And if we think about that, it's a pretty terrifying prospect to stand before a throne like that. Today we use the word awesome about a lot of different things. Most of them aren't really awesome at all. But the Almighty on his throne is the definition of awesome. You can't second guess him. And you can't hide a thing from him. In fact, the presence of God is so awesome, John says the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. In the Bible, the word heaven is used in several different ways. It can refer to the place where God is today. The spiritual realm where his people who have died are present with him today. That's one way the word heaven is used in the Bible. But very often it simply refers to the sky above. Often the words earth and heaven appear together. It's a way of summing up this whole created world. Sometimes that's expanded to include the heavens, the earth, and the sea. The NIV, if that's what you're using, tries to show that distinction by translating the word as heavens, plural, when it's referring to the sky, and translating it as heaven, singular, when it refers to where God is today. Sometimes it goes further and actually translates the word heaven as sky when it's referring to the sky. Other translations do similar things. But in any case, the point is, when John tells us in verse 11, the earth and the heavens fled from God's presence, he means the whole created world fled. Earth and sky and sea. What John is seeing in this vision is massive upheaval in the cosmos. Back in chapter 6, it was described like this. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. In another place, the Apostle Peter describes it like this. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Revelation chapter 21 will describe this as the passing away of the first heaven and earth. It will pass away to make way for the new heaven and earth. 
And what all this means is when judgment day comes, there's no going back. Now the Bible also implies the new creation will be, in some sense, a restoration of the old creation. There will be some sort of continuity between this world and the new world. Just as our resurrection bodies will be new, and yet they will have some connection to these present bodies. Paul says, the body that is sown or buried is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. He's saying all those things happen to the same body. It will be vastly different, yet somehow the same. So even if this body has already turned to dust in the grave, it will still in some sense be this body that's raised to be a glorious resurrection body. I mention that because the same applies to the new heaven and earth. The new will emerge out of the dust and ashes of the old, like a butterfly from a caterpillar. We'll be thinking more about these things over the next couple of weeks. But what is being emphasized here in these verses is that Judgment Day will be a watershed. After Judgment Day, there will be no more business as usual. That can be hard for us to accept. Because throughout history and even throughout our lives, even when the biggest events come along, they pass and life tends to go on. When there's a royal wedding, it seems like everything pauses for a day. Maybe during the Olympics or during a World Cup, things seem to pause for a few weeks if we really get engrossed in what's going on. A war can put people's lives on hold for months or years. And yet sooner or later, normal life picks up again. But judgment day will be different. The world of normal life isn't just going to pause for judgment day, it's going to end. But why does John say the earth and heavens fled from God's presence? That's an unusual way to put it. They flee because they are infected with sin, just like humanity is. When we looked at the book of Romans quite a few months ago, Romans chapter 8, we realized as amazing and wonderful as this creation is, it's not even half of what it could be and what it will be one day when it's been made new. But on judgment day, confronted with God's holiness and perfection, this sin-infected world has to flee. It will dissolve before his awesome presence. And what about us? What about the human race? 
Well, there will be nowhere for us to flee to. Every hiding place will be gone. Every cave, every catacomb, every tunnel, every underground shelter, every grave, they will all have fled along with this heaven and earth. And so we will not be able to flee. We will have to face the definitive judgment. It's going to be definitive for several reasons. We've already seen one. It will be definitive because it takes place in the awesome presence of God. But verses 12 and 13 give us two more reasons. This judgment will be definitive because all humanity will be there. Verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Then in verse 13, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. That little phrase, great and small, has come up four times before in Revelation. Twice it referred to all kinds of believers. And twice it referred to all kinds of unbelievers. And here we're being told the righteous and the wicked will all stand before the throne. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And if we wonder why John only mentions the dead here, It's not because the living are not going to be judged. We're being told the dead will be brought to join the living. This is judgment day for everyone. Picture that. A vast, vast sea of humanity. All of them standing on exactly the same level before the same great throne. In this life, if you happen to have enough money, you can buy your way out of most awkward situations in life. If you've risen high enough in society, you can get yourself excused from most appointments in this life. But on this day, there will be no exemptions for the great in society. Nor will any of the small in society slip through the net. That neighbor of yours, the one no one ever seemed to visit, that lady who served you at the checkout, that boy who played out in your street. All of those unidentified bodies found in woods and canals, they will not be overlooked. They will all be there before the throne. Bruce Milne says this, Those who lived and died, leaving behind no slightest trace on the surface of history, 
the long forgotten, the ancient and remote, the inaccessible, the unnoticed and the ignored, all these, without exception, will be there before the throne. Every work colleague, every pupil and teacher at your school, every supporter sitting around you at the football, everyone in the queue at the post office, every cabinet minister, every lord and lady, they all have an appointment before the throne. Don't we need to tell them that? You and I have an appointment there too. Don't we need to live with that in our mind? This judgment will be definitive because all humanity will be there. And also because all the evidence will be revealed. Look at the middle of verse 12. John says, the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. There's a distinction here between the books and the book of life. So let's think first of all about the books, plural. What are they? They're simply a way of picturing the fact that God's knowledge is exhaustive. It's complete. And God's memory is perfect. Every word and deed is recorded. And the motivations and the intentions behind every deed are recorded. Every thought and every hint of a thought, it's all there in the books. This is what Jesus said. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. On judgment day, no one will be able to say, I never said that. Or, I didn't mean that. Or, that's not fair. Or, If only you knew my circumstances at that time. No one will be able to say, there's another side to that story, you know. No one will be able to say those things because it will all be there. Every side of every story. Every intention of every heart. Every hesitation, every nuance of every passing moment. All of it is in the books. All of it will be brought to light. 
And every argument will be silenced by the truth. Bruce Milne again says this. Never before nor ever again will there transpire a judgment where the relevant evidence is even remotely as comprehensive. The final judgment will be the only judgment in all of time and history which is truly fair. Because the judge is the God of utter justice and limitless knowledge, the judgment passed will be beyond challenge. How should you and I feel about this comprehensive evidence that leads to a truly fair judgment? How should we feel about it? Can we approach this opening of the books with confidence? We often act today like comprehensive evidence is just what's needed. That it would favor us. That's what we're claiming when we say, you need to hear my side of the story. We are claiming, if all of the facts were known, I would be vindicated. But how do we feel about all the facts really being made known? Do you really want every thought and deed brought into the light? Displayed for all to see? Would you face that with confidence? With your head held high? I don't think any of us would. Still, maybe we'd say, okay, yes, there would be some uncomfortable moments. There would. If all was made known, granted, I would want to hide at some points. But at least it would show I wasn't as bad as plenty of other people. But the standard of God's judgment is not going to be other people. The standard is going to be his own perfect holiness. The same holiness that will cause earth and heaven to flee from his presence. Judged by that standard, can any of us feel confident? Don't we have to agree with Paul when he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is not going to be one of those situations where we just hope everyone else does worse than us so we at least look passable. Measured against God's perfection, we all feel. We all face removal from his presence. And where are we going to go? On that day, there will be no going back to this earth. It's not going to be there anymore. And there will be no going forward to the new earth. That's where God's going to be. 
The only destination for those who fail the judgment is what verse 14 calls the second death. It's the second death because it comes beyond physical death. It's an eternal death. Described here as a lake of fire. It's the same place the unholy trinity are destined for. The dragon, the beast and the false prophet. It's a place of eternal torment. A living death. But we can thank God that's not all John sees in this vision. Back in verse 12, he saw that alongside the books of our deeds, another book was opened, the book of life. And John assures us on judgment day, that book is our only hope. Verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This confirms no human being will be acquitted on the basis of their deeds. It's not going to happen. Judgment on the basis of our deeds only leads to condemnation. No one meets the standard. Escape from the lake of fire and a place in the new heaven and earth, well, that rests on the contents of this other book, Earlier in Revelation, it was called the Lamb's Book of Life. So if the books are a record of deeds, what's recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life? Verse 15 tells us. It's not a book of deeds, it's a book of names. It's a record of all those purchased for God with the Lamb's blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. We said Judgment Day will be a day of perfect justice. It will not be a day when sin is swept under the carpet. And we've seen that every one of us will be condemned on the basis of the books. So how can we be saved by this book? Simply because 2,000 years ago, the Son of God took the place of the condemned. On the cross, the perfect judge took the judgment that was due to sinners. The cross didn't sweep sin under the carpet. It paid for sin. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus Christ was described as the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And so today, you and I can come to the risen Son of God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when we do that, we will receive mercy. Not cheap mercy, but mercy that cost Jesus everything. 
The Lamb's Book of Life contains the names of those who owned up to their sin and hated their sin and cried to the Lamb for mercy. For those men and women, Judgment Day will unfold like this. Picture yourself on that day being called forward finally. Your moment has come. And you stand before this great white throne. The books are opened. All of your deeds are exposed. And the verdict is announced. Guilty. But then, as the other book is consulted, the announcement continues. And this one's guilt has been paid for by the Lamb. The books are only going to give one verdict. It will be the same for every one of us. Guilty. Our only hope, and it is a glorious hope, is for our name to be found in the other book, the Lamb's Book of Life. And we don't have to guess whether our name's in that book. We don't have to go through life hoping we made it. We simply have to put our trust in the Lamb who was slain for our salvation. The Lamb who took the hell we deserve. The Bible assures us anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Without him, judgment day will mean nothing but shame for us and condemnation. With him, we don't need to fear judgment day. And we don't need to fear the other side of judgment day. We can look forward to a world without Satan, without sin, without death, and without shame. Isn't that the world you want? If it is, then come to the Lamb today. Admit your sin. Ask him for mercy and you will receive mercy. And if you have already received his mercy, then this is another day and another opportunity to praise him for his great grace. Let's do that together as we sing, first of all, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.